0: To get Dose.
1: Yeah. Welcome to Dosed, everybody. It is Saturday, May twenty first. 2 p.m. here in Los Angeles. You're listening to a song called Filaments Burst by Anahedron. You can find it wherever you listen to music. Shout out to everyone joining us live today and Shout out to everyone listening in the future. We're really enjoying this new project, talking to all of you and talking to our favorite people. Really appreciate everyone listening in. Got another heavy hitter guest today, someone I've personally gained so much from reading and listening to. So without further ado, here is your host, Abby Martin.
0: I'm trying to become more than I have been up until now. I don't want to accept my existing limitations as an immutable sentence or some sort of inevitable destiny. I'm tired of being afraid. I'm tired of being intimidated by conflict. I'm tired of shrinking in the face of hardship. And when a horde of demons will burst out of hell screaming my name, they won't be impressed with how well-read I am or with the fact that I'm nice, sweet, and have good manners. The only thing that will matter is whether I can take everything they dish out and have any strength left to laugh in their face these are the words of daniele Bellelli in his latest book not afraid on fear heartbreak raising a baby girl and cage fighting where he recounts his personal journey through tragedy and rebirth other books he's authored have been a source for many on navigating life including create your own religion and his breakthrough work on the warrior's path Known as a philosopher and martial artist, Daniele is also a prolific storyteller of history. His cinematic deep dives into historical epics are captured in his podcast, History on Fire. He also hosts a podcast on life and philosophy called The Drunken Taoist. My first exposure to Daniele, Daniele, <laughs> sorry, I'm I'm horrible with names and I am still oh, trying to figure I'm out the Italian. <laughs> was uh, Daniele, when I first heard of you, Mike and I were actually driving across uh, Southwest, all the in- insanely gorgeous national parks and this huge uh-huh. RV listening to you talk to Duncan Trussell. And I was thinking, you know, and the environment probably had something to do with this, but I was, I remember thinking it was the most meaningful conversation I'd ever heard. Like, literally, I was, like, blown away. And I recommend, of course, all of your conversations with Duncan, but this one really stuck with me. And so, of course, when we started this episode, this show, rather, this, you were one of the first guests I wanted to reach out to. I am so excited to have you here with us now. Welcome to the show, Daniele Balele.
2: Thank you so much for having me. By the way, uh, where my mental power may be fading these days, right now, I heard that when you started the show with that quote, for the first I don't know, five, six, seven seconds. I was like, huh, that's a pretty cool quote. I wonder what that is. And then I'm like, oh, wait, it begins to sound familiar now.
0: (laughs) I love it. I love it. You've written so much that I'm sure it's hard to keep track. I mean, it's so cool to finally talk to you because I think we have a lot of mutual acquaintances. You know, you're such a multifaceted person. There's always so many different things I've wanted to talk to you about. But let's start from here that start at the base level here, because I always ask people who come on things that they've learned that have been transformational in some way, like something that's made you look at something totally different or something that you constantly refer back to, or has just tripped you the fuck out. Like dosed. what's one of those dosed moments for you? Dosed. I think, uh,
2: I think growing up, one of the things that I noticed was that often the people who were the happiest and most positive We're also some of the least aware. And so I felt trapped in this dichotomy where I would either be sold you can be happy and be kind of clueless and superficial, or you can be deep and suffering and life is a struggle because you are aware of all the terrible things out there. Clearly, those are terrible options because, you know, being aware but miserable or being happy because you're stupid, neither one of those seem like, yeah, I want to sign up for that. (laughs) So it was really cool when I started running into things that gave me an option that felt like that sensitivity or depth or awareness were not courses. They could be. I mean, of course, you're dealing with more when you're aware of all the horror that's around us some of the time, but it, it doesn't have to spoil your mood from here on forever. So, for example, people like... One guy that I did a series about, um, History on Fire, I, I covered this guy named Ikkyu, was a Zen master from the 1400s. And the guy was... I mean, on one hand, he lived through a lot. He period of civil war in Japan, famine, pestilence, you name it. And at the same time, despite living through all that, the guy had this beautifully positive attitude to our life. Not positive in the sense that he's not aware of all the misery, but positive in the sense that he's able to take it all in and still find a way to be happy about it. There's this fantastic line of his that say, throw me into hell and I'll find a way to enjoy it. <laughs> and I love that defiance. You know what I mean? I love that. I'm not saying hell is no hell or like motivational speaker 101. Hell, is just a perspective. Really, it's a fantastic opportunity. No, sometimes it's terrible. Sometimes things are exactly as bad as they seem. But that doesn't mean that they should crush you. You can still find a way to smile and be happy in random circumstances. Clearly way easier said than done, but I like that. You know, that was something that made me feel, okay, I'm not trapped with these two poor choices. There is a way to be aware of things and not let those things dictate how you feel inside
0: well i like that so much um because first of all that kind of goes back to the initial quote from you that i read and it also just it it makes me feel about um you know my work as well because a lot of people are like how do you do this how are you not just constantly depressed like how do you dive into this research and not just you know want to commit yourself to like an insane asylum and it's just like i i actually like am empowered and i feel very inspired and actually i think it's knowledge is so beautiful and even as dark you know you can go into these really really dark spots in our history and and the capacity of humans to commit just barbarism and but at the same time it's like i i get invigorated by the knowledge that i feed myself and i feel like i it, it's enlightening to actually see the good and like the duality of like the possibility of human nature like that is something that inspires me because i can understand like being a good person and rising above these things and it makes me like even more respectful of like that that ability to have like it's just something that's really cool and and it and it kind of kind of brings me to like the yin and yang you know that you talk about i mean the fact that there's this duality in life like you're this incredible historical st- storyteller. You've developed this reputation as someone who's had this tremendous insight to life's challenges and the tagline of your show is fuck pain, fuck heartache, I'm still in love with life. And I think that people are familiar with like the concept of the duality that we're talking about. Like there's good and bad, light and dark, beauty, pain, the yin and the yang. But I think that that also implies this balance that there are equal parts, right? But I think that as you would probably agree with, like, no one really experiences life this way with this perfect harmony. And I think for some people, a more accurate yin and yang would be, you know, a giant light swallowing up the dark, or for many others, the opposite. But like, for people who've never dealt with real suffering and real loss, and of course, it's inevitable that they will, just like people in tremendous pain can find happiness again. So I don't know, just talk about your outlook on this. Like, how do you find happiness? balance and how do you prepare for the times where we have to confront the darkness I
2: think when it comes to balance it's not a static thing it's not like 50-50 or even no it's 70 it's a constantly changing thing right because all our life is is endless change like things around us are constantly changing we are constantly changing so balance is a dynamic state it's like it's like i conceive of it like surfing you know if you the energy of the wave pushes you one way to stay in balance. You need to throw yourself 80% to the opposite side and 20 and 20 to the other side. But then like three seconds later, the energy of the wave has changed and you need to adapt accordingly. That's kind of how I look at it. That is not, there is no single simple dogma that you can follow. Like it's always about pushing hard or it's always about relaxing and being softer or it's always in the middle. There is no always. It's, You need to read the situation and you need to be able to find the right balance for that situation and be ready to change it five minutes later as the situation evolves. Which, Of course, I think one of the reasons why that's not a popular way to look at life is because it asks us to do a lot. It's hard work. It's not an easy thing to do. It's so much easier to follow a simple dogma that tells you to behave a certain way in all circumstances, always and forever, because it's simple. It's not reality. You know, it really, that's not how life actually works. But if you follow that ground rule, you may get it right 30% of the time. You know. Um, I think reality forces us to be a little bit more on our toes, a little bit more kind of smelling the air and try to figure out how to adapt accordingly. And in terms of when things get ugly, which, as you said, inevitably they will in everybody's life, you know, many people get are introduced to the harsher aspects of life very early. Other will be luckier and they will run into it less and maybe later in life. But it's ultimately inevitable for everybody that you're going to run into a lot of terrible things. That's can break your heart that are sad everybody gets old everybody die. everybody gets sick all of that stuff so clearly that's not a happy you know when you realize it when you are again some people realize it when they are kids some people later but when you realize it not just intellectually but through experience of course it's a giant kick in the groin because you feel like this sucks who the hell designed life this way this is awful you know this doesn't <laughs> feel good and yet it's like, well, okay, sure, we can say that. And maybe you're right, but that doesn't change that those are the cards you have been handed. So now the question is, how do you play them? How can you play those cards in a way that maximize your ability to be a decent human being, to enjoy life, to help other people enjoy life, despite the very existential limitations that come with being human? And of course, again, easier said than done, right? They're, but to me, the ideal is, um, take to me, really toughness. Uh, somebody who I admire for their toughness is somebody who's a- able to kind of take in all the stuff that life can dish out to them. And yet not make them be jaded, not make them be cynical, not make them be... You know, the classic thing that happens to most people is that if you are on the receiving end of a lot of abuse, then you feel uh, inevitably you're angry. And so you want to dish it out to somebody else. Sometimes this person may be deserving of abuse. Somebody not. Like somebody may be just vengeance because it's the people who caused you misery sometimes. No, sometimes you're just being an asshole because you are miserable and you pass it on to somebody else. And so to me, the greatest heroic action that somebody can do is being, having been on the receiving end of some terrible things and not pass them on to others. And if anything, precisely because you know how it feels to be extra kind to other people, to use that emotional strength you have developed to, to be there and to be strong when people are wavering. And because you know that experience, you, you have been there, you know it, and, and you don't want to make anybody else's existence any harder than it already needs to
0: be. Yeah, I mean, breaking the cycle, right? And there's so much trauma that's generational institutional trauma mm-hmm. but i think you know what i was trying to say earlier you just elucidated it. it's like the superficiality of uh, the notion of happiness it's like it's so much more rich when you embrace the good and the bad and then you can mm-hmm. still find that happiness out of the darkness because you know there's a lot of people and, and of course all individuals suffer and experience trauma and loss but i think if you take in the outside knowledge and try to use that to instruct your life to be a better person as well and somehow be an agent of change in your own community and society, it becomes quite dark and overwhelming. But again, like it could be enlightening and inspiring and somehow that makes the happiness and the good times so much more rich because you are just letting it all in and you embrace it all. And, you know, I have the tendency to go from one extreme to the, to the other. And I think that it does feel quite unhealthy sometimes. So I, I really like your approach of finding balance. And I think being easy on yourself, you know, not getting too down about the state of the world or how big everything is. Because if you're doing the best you can, then isn't that really all you can do? Like if you really are genuinely doing that.
2: Yep, 100%. That's all you can do. And if at some time it's, uh, It's instructive, particularly in those situations where you really are powerless to change the outcome, where it doesn't matter how much willpower, discipline, hard work you put in, there are some situations where you you simply cannot change the outcome. Things are going to be the way they are, regardless of how you wish them to be. And yet, finding a way in that one moment before kind of the inevitable outcome in that one moment to make things, everything more pleasant for everyone in the room to make everybody smile, to give some people, because again, ultimately we all die. Ultimately we all lose the things we love that there's not much you can do to change that. But in the meantime, in that one, and again, moment to moment, right? Because the past is usually a source of regret, and the future is a source of anxiety. So really focusing some time on the present, on just trying to make this one moment great. And once we have done that, the next one, and the next one. And then there will be the time when external circumstances make it so that, no, it's going to be pretty hard to make it uh, like a happy, pleasant moment. And yet you have strong enough along the way that Certainly be the alternative of sitting back and whipping yourself, thinking about how things are going to go terrible or how the state of the world is awful.
0: Well, I like that you say it's embracing the mystery, because mm-hmm. that's truly what it is. We have we have no control over, I mean, we have some amount of control, of course, but a lot of it is out of our control, in LA. And a lot of it is completely fucking mysterious to us.
2: Yep. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the things like the times, uh, the times when people close to me died, but not like car accident died, where it's sudden and there's no preparation, there's no where, you know, it's sickness, is illness. So it takes a while there, there's a, there's a transition period between when they are sick, and when you realize yeah, there's no coming out of it. And yet, even then, it's not like they are dead in that moment. So there's that phase that can feel completely hopeless. Because it is, you know, you're not going to change the outcome. You're not going to, you know, snap your fingers and suddenly heal them and everything is going to work out the way you wish. And yet they're not dead yet and they need every ounce of, you know, this is whatever the last few days, weeks, months they have to live. And if you can find ways to make those last uh, moments, days, weeks, months more pleasant, happier, give them something kind of to squeeze those last bit of life in a way that uh, that ultimately doesn't feel all like doom and gloom. I say that's as uh, wonderful an accomplishment as anyone can pull off.
0: And I mean, the fact that you lost your wife when you had a 19 month old toddler is just it's it's a lot to wrap your mind around. And I think it's it really gives a lot of insight on how you have you've channeled all of that in, into a very positive thing. I'm sure it wasn't easy. No, definitely not. <laughs> that's
2: sometimes what I resent about the kind of motivational speaker type of lines. Mm-hmm. They tend to make the process feel a lot simpler than it is. You know, there's these like, Oh, it's all for the best. Uh, just it's, change attitude, and it's like, no, man, you're still going to get your ass kicked. You're still going to suffer. You're still going to go through a lot that's harsh and terrible. And to deny that, to pretend that that's not there, is just denying reality. You know, It's just like, I'm sorry, no, that's not how it works. And at the same time, once we acknowledge that shit is shit and some things are truly terrible, not letting them dictate we are going to be from that moment on is key. You know, and I've been, you know, there have been plenty of times where I feel uh, pretty bad in my eyes and reality sort of put a mirror in front of me. And I really didn't like what I saw. You know, there were times when, as you said, you know, my my daughter was tiny when uh, when my wife died. And so in the following years. Maybe I am sleep deprived. I'm trying to do all these things to give us a better life. I'm struggling. I'm frustrated. And, you know, it's the third time that day when she spilled milk on the floor. And so you're like, God, why can't you get? It? And then you're like, are you seriously yelling at the two-year-old because you can keep your feet together? What's wrong with you? You know, it's like, so sometimes the thing, and, you know, on one hand, it's good to have compassion toward yourself, saying, "Amen." Hey, man, you're under an enormous amount of pressure and you have been doing your best So cut yourself some slack, but at the same time to be like, okay, don't do that shit again, because that's not cool. You know, you don't want to pass your inability to handle emotion to your kid because that's just not okay.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it does seem like there's a big need. Well, first of all, I can't even imagine... (laughs) The lack of understanding, especially around people who are your age, because it's like for me, um, you know, at at our age and our generation, it's like people are starting to die, you know, Mm -hmm. and and it's just a completely different understanding, especially having a kid. And it does feel like death is on my mind constantly, I guess, because I feel now where I have a reason to stay alive more (laughs) now because of of him. But it's also like, you know, and, and you start to lose your parents, but it just must be so fucking just life-altering to have all this ripped out from under you and then to not it's like people could give you all sorts of words that they want wish but no one really understands what the fuck you're going through and you have to pull through because it's not about you dude Mm -hmm. it's about someone else I mean I just can't even wrap my mind around that but I mean even societally speaking it seems like there's a huge need of just mental health work and self-fulfillment because the people who haven't had to deal with a trauma like that the world we live in is pretty tragic and traumatizing in itself, you know? I mean, we see manifestations of this everywhere, like suicide rates, addiction, depression, alienation. I mean, we're in such an alienating time, especially now. So a lot of diseases of despair, like, clearly reveal that there's something about modern society that's incompatible with happiness. I think there's um, Chris... Do you ever had Chris Ryan on the show? I, I, I love Chris Ryan, and I'm actually just in the middle of his book right now. Oh, that's
2: fine. Yeah. that's exactly cuz that's where I was going. Yeah. That's exactly text that's exactly what he articulates so well in civilized to that, right? It is civilization has evolved to solve a lot of problems that it creates, but never in a way that quite replace what it took away. And so yeah, there's the simple fact that modern society don't get me wrong. Of course there are 10,000 conveniences that we have that are fantastic. But there are a lot of things that are not really designed for human happiness. You know, there's just not, uh, I think you isolated one right there when you were saying alienation. You know, the fact that one of the modern diseases that people fall prey the most is loneliness, feeling alienated from their work, feeling alienated from people around them. We don't live as extended families. Uh, We spend relatively little time with friends. And people are lonely as hell, which, of course, is not the way we are designed. So, of course, it takes a huge toll on people's mental health.
0: Well, how did you use martial arts to help you? And what do you think that that could do for others?
2: I think one of the things that I like about martial arts is... um, You know, we all fall in love with the promise of empowerment, of martial arts, with this idea that you can learn these things that can make you invincible and blah, blah, blah. Of course, that's not how it works in reality. It doesn't work in reality for anybody. I mean, take the best martial artist on the planet. On the wrong day, they will get their ass kicked by somebody who is luckier or better than them on that one day. So there is really no such a thing as what... You know, that sense of invincibility that feels safe, that will protect you from all the horrible things in life, that's not real. But what it is real is that you get used to getting your ass kicked a lot in, pra- in this relatively safe context of practice. And that's not a fun experience. That's not something that, you know, when you have a 250 pound dude on top of you who's using all his Pressure to squeeze you into the floor until they eventually choke you out—it's not the greatest experience ever. Or you're sparring with somebody who's better than you, and I don't know. Uh, some people may like it, but getting punched in the face, as a general rule, does not feel that great. So being in those situation where any normal person, in any sense, would be like, "Okay, I want to, I want out of here. This sucks. I don't, I don't feel like being here any longer." But choosing to stay in it, even when it's fairly hopeless, because it's not like you're going to turn the table. This person is simply better than you. You're not going to change things on that one day. But to be like, okay, this is how it is. I'm still here. I'm not choosing to get out. So deal with it. Like learning how to deal with defeat, with pressure, with things not going your way is actually probably is the most important thing that a person can learn from an activity like martial arts, because the reality is that while the perfect technique is not going to translate to the rest of your life, nobody cares if you can throw a fantastic jab or you do the perfect armbar. The reality of dealing with things not going your way, dealing with pressure, dealing with and, and not letting that crush you. That will apply to the rest of your life because you're going to find 10,000 situations where you're going to feel the exact same way and you're going to want to run in a different direction, but maybe you can't. And so being able to stay with it without letting it crush you, that is a hell of a skill to develop.
0: Well, it's also just really cool. Like The hand-on-hand combat thing is something that's really awesome because, like you said, I mean, it's it's unsettling. It's... can be very unfun but it's Mm -hmm. also like a huge physical and mental challenge especially when you do have an opponent that's like your you know in your like that is kind of an equal and so it you know that that's not something that people do when they are obsessed with guns you know because a lot of people especially here in america um use that kind of notion of of Mm self-empowerment of course driven by fear um and they become armed arm to the teeth. Um, And I think that this seems pretty counterproductive because, according to you, martial arts actually leads people down a path of nonviolence, which I want you to explain. But in a way, guns, of course, I mean, obviously, like are the complete opposite because once you have something in your hand and you start to hoard and and buy and want to collect things that are literally designed and their only purpose is to kill, um, that that's a really big problem right and of course it does lead to violence in the sense that of course you know we all know the statistics about suicide is more likely to happen if there's a gun in the home of course violence is more likely to happen if there's a gun in the home um you know and it's and it's also that these suicides wouldn't happen a lot of them without the gun in the home it's not that people are searching for something and they just happen to have the gun it's that the gun makes it so fucking easy and i just don't the gun culture, it's all fetishizing this ancient document that enshrines this right to just have these mass murdering machines. And not don't get me wrong. like i I'm not saying that we should ban guns or anything like that. like oh. I, I I appreciate and respect guns. I especially respect the fucking power of guns because the second you yeah. shoot one, I mean, that to me, it it's it's pretty incredible. And yeah. I think that we should really respect that, meaning we should not abuse that power. <laughs>
2: Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, I think there's. It's often framed as you are either pro-gun or anti-gun, and it's like that's a stupid dichotomy because it's a bit more complicated than that, as you're saying. And I think one of the differences psychologically is that whereas uh, any kind of martial art training will involve sparring, will involve the experience of losing, will involve you having to deal with uh, things not going your way, will involve you know there's a back and forth that is part of the game with sparring. With guns, you, know, you don't spar with guns. You don't yeah, you're dead. <laughs> you have know, a gunfight with
0: someone That's, that's just, it. <laughs>
2: not, yeah, exactly. That's not how it works. So you, there's always the the what if. It's like, oh, if things were to go this way, I would do this and this and this. Which, of course, when you don't have the practical experience, or even if you do once in your life, and that's already a lot, you know, that's not exactly a repeated experience that you get to learn a lot from. In terms of the psychology of it, it doesn't bring those other lessons that martial art practice does bring. And again, you know, if you are, for example, if you are like a 90 pound woman and you have to deal with living in circumstances where your security is threatened, by all means, have a gun. It may be the way, the thing that save you. But, to, but it's simply not this thing that psychologically can allow you to dive deep and face certain things about yourself that a martial practice that requires firing will do.
0: Well, I I did karate for a couple of years when I was a kid and I got to my green belt, but I definitely... Now you're inspiring me to want to get back in, man. I mean, shit. It's fun.
2: It's fun. It's I think fun. there are some things where realistically, most people are not really doing it for self-defense or things like that. I mean, they like the martial art because of the idea, then they discover... But then, as we are saying, connected with the loneliness, I think it becomes something that, for many people, it becomes the social center of their life. You know, they go to some shitty work where there are only twenty other cubicles and uh, don't like most people there, and instead they go x number of times a week to a place where other people are there to practice and train, and it becomes kind of their extended family. Now, for me. That's a very poor replacement for real deeper human content, but it sure is a whole lot better than nothing when we live in a society where human content is running so thin and being in an environment where you get to train, you get to have the experience, you know, the endorphins that kick in, where you start sweating and working hard, all the stuff you learn by facing the inevitable trials and tribulations that come with martial art practice, the fact that they are doing it with other people so that's fun in terms of community building there, there are 10,000 different benefits to it that's why I personally i'm highly addicted to it and have been pretty much my whole adult life because it, it just it helps my mental health for sure it's something that i find uh, when i find myself reaching boiling points getting a good workout getting in there not thinking about anything else but the physical practice Feels really good. I feel like all that extra steam gets blown over and I can think clearer again.
1: Daniele, I actually, a few years ago, I read your book on the warrior's path and that Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's hard to read that book if you weren't already a martial arts practitioner and then not, uh, just get involved with some martial arts because it's like what's the point of reading the book if you're just going to read it and then be like right. oh that was cool i like martial arts now but i'm just not gonna do it um so i like uh went on a journey of like trying to find it's hard to actually find a place to train because you have to try out a bunch of different styles yep. and dojos because there's a lot of like you know i guess they call them dojos, like kind of scammy yep. places just trying to get you to sign up um but i feel like what i got out of it the most i ended up finding a really cool uh, old Shotokan karate spot in little Tokyo that had been around for a long time. Like the master who taught there was in his seventies and he started training there when he was like six years old in that same exact room. Um, but the thing that I feel like got out of it the most was like the ritual aspect, like prior, like, cause I was like, of course the, the lowest ranking. And so all the low, ranking people training there you have to show up early you have to clean the floor you have to take the bucket of dirty water and then water this tree with it that was planted for the guy mm-hmm. that founded the dojo and just this like communal like kind of silent. and it was silent nobody talks and just like this ritual aspect of it and then you meditate together and then the lesson starts and i felt like that's what gave me kind of the best part about it it wasn't even the the combat and the training oh. and stuff like that it was just that element it was almost like a kind of religious ritual in a way, but it was just kind of about focusing on this. And also like the fact that, you know, like this is like kind of like this timeless space. It's like they were doing this thing over and over again, the same exact way for like 70 years. And just kind of like all of a sudden you're separated from time and space outside and you're just kind of like in this timeless little
0: temple. This is Zen garden.
2: No, it is. And that's why, in fact, to me, it's important to understand what is that people, you as an individual want to get from martial art practice, because not everything is, not every art, not every place is good for everybody and vice versa. I, personally, I find that there's something interesting, in pretty much all of them. Some may be better from the point of view of actual physical combat, but maybe that's not what you're in there for. Maybe you run into somebody who's just such a cool human being and they do teach things that you enjoy in terms of how it makes you feel physically, and that's fantastic in itself. And there, and there are the ritual. I think that's also yeah one of the things. The Some of the traditional martial arts, particularly Japanese martial arts, tend to emphasize some of the ritual aspects that are, if they are done right, they can be really cool. And sometimes the modern combat sport type of stuff tends to, they have sort of lost that. And in some cases, they don't bring that to the table. And again, that can be good or bad, depending. You know, if the ritual is feels artificial and doesn't feel like it speaks to you, well, then you're better off without it. But if it does, then you lost something by just focusing purely on uh, let's get on the mat and start sweating. And so, I think there are multiple aspects to it, and that's why it's important when somebody wants to check it out to take a look at different places to see what a tra- like. You take a look at a lesson. What does it feel like? Does it? does it speak to you? Does that particular thing seem something that speaks to you or not? And and really, I don't think there's an answer that's the same for everybody. Depends on who you are, who you are looking for, the phase of your life, many different things.
0: I want to run this by you because a good friend of mine got captured into this um, world and just kind of broke out of it and has likened it to a cult. I'm not sure how you know how deep what she's talking about goes, but I'm talking about this kind of um, influencer, brand ambassador of, like, the New Age um, witchcraft, like, slash philosopher, slash self-help. Like, a lot of these people who are claiming to either have attained enlightenment or can offer the (laughs) sacred wisdom. And, like, yeah, there are legit people doing this work, of course. But, like, a lot more prevalent is a lot of these bullshitters who take bits and pieces of, like, Eastern philosophy and repackage it. And sadly, it's all truncated on, like, TikTok and Instagram, and, and it always comes down to how much money, how much money, baby, let's get the lessons, because I got the secret, I got the secret, and it's all about getting rich. It's, like, kind of a gross market that's cynically exploiting this great need for self-improvement and, like, personal enrichment that I think many are seeking, and it's kind of... Aside from that, it's also kind of like a weird colonizer mindset of, like, appropriating, like, indigenous practices and spirituality and and claiming that, like, you invented them and that you need to charge people to get them. Like, have you tapped into this world at all? It's pretty big yeah I mean it's and
2: as a rule of thumb that's always a good place to start anybody who claim to be enlightened or to be anybody who starts saying I'm the spiritual is like okay we're done there's nothing left. <laughs> like anybody who actually is is not gonna advertise it anybody who's uh you know is gonna have more sense of humor and humility about it they are not gonna be that because that's like ego masquerading under effects out of spirituality and just wanting attention and benefits and all that stuff so it's The exact opposite of it. So in some way, the more, the louder people are about stuff like that, usually the more you want to run away because they are not the people you want to trust. I think it's, um, I trust people who are, who make no mystery of who they are in terms of their weaknesses, the places where they screw up, their, uh, where they don't ask you for money every three seconds you know there are a few mm-hmm. warning bells out there that can definitely be like yeah this is not a good idea but i remember it connected with what you're saying i remember one thing i witnessed once that cracked me up it was um as in the middle of south dakota i was um on a native on a lakota reservation and they were having kind of annual dance ceremony and there's uh, the sundancer dancers would pass their pipes to people attending the ceremony, and they would hand it to them to smoke and pass around in this ritual, right? And I remember this lady, who I'm sure she meant well, and I'm sure, but it was funny because it was she clearly wasn't from that culture. She was coming in, and and she had superimposed a little bit of her ideas about what was going on, and so she's trying to light the pipe. She's trying to light the pipe, and the fire keeps going out, and And you can see that she's taking herself really seriously. And she takes this deep sigh. And she goes like, ah, the spirits don't want me to light the pipe. (laughs) And and there's this old Lakota lady next to her. who She's trying really hard to be polite and not to start burst out laughing. But you can tell that she's about to explode. But she wants to be nice. And she's like, look. It's a really windy day today. Just put a (laughs) hand in front of you when you like the (laughs) thing, And to me, that was the difference between the real spirituality of bullshit. Because, you know, for the old lady, that is her life. That is what she believes in. She believes in spirit. She believes in this, that, and the other. But also precisely because she believes it. It's like, relax a little. You know, yes, sometimes it's a message that you want to be attuned to. But sometimes it's just a windy day. Take it easy. Don't make everything so damn heavy, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and I love that. I was just like, yeah, that's the real deal. That's somebody who who practice it for real.
0: Uh, absolutely. No, I, I went to Pine Ridge as well. I met with Hen- um, Henry Redcloud, the great-great-grandson mm-hmm. of, of course, Chief Henry Redcloud and what an incredibly rich place full of history, full of knowledge. And, you know, we're actually working on a piece right now about the Lakota Sioux, the ghost dance and a really disturbing. And I know that you're, you're doing a lot of work on this too, Daniele. And what's crazy is there's all these native artifacts that are like held in museums under private hands that um, are violating like federal law and not being given back to tribes. And it's just an issue that I had no idea um, was happening. And it's just, it's just heartbreaking and just diving back into the rich history of of struggle
3: mm-hmm. you know over
0: the course of several centuries of the indian wars it's just it's just absolutely mind mind bending because you know we don't really learn real history in this country <laughs> i, mean, I, I can 't remember. Yeah. The last time I went to a museum and saw native artifacts that I was like, oh, like really taking stock of like the actual genocide that took place. It's usually papered over or, you know, you you think, oh, these artifacts are here because there's like a mutual respect and transaction between the tribes and whoever the fuck is running this museum. And a lot of times it is completely not the case.
2: Well, it's not. And that. It's even I mean now is even better than it was prior to nineteen ninety when they passed this law, Nagpra, that uh, that essentially requires museum and private collectors to get a permission from descendants of the people, uh whatever artifacts you have, or in some cases forget even artifacts, even human bones. Dude, you know, yep. bones. Scalps so, in absolutely. this case, scalps. Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. So it's uh you know, federal law in 1990 changed giving the tribes a little bit more of a say so over this stuff before they had zero power. And I think when it comes to native folks, is a different story because when in, you know, in terms of ethnic minorities, native peoples are roughly about 1% of the po- total population of the United States. That's a really small percentage. So that means that most people don't have day to day interaction with native folks. They Most people don't read, so they are not really going to learn it by reading books about it. So really, the only way people are going to get ideas is by what they see in media, which, you know, most of the time is going to be stereotypes. It's going to be either the old style John Wayne kind of movies or the more... Oh, every native is uh, spiritual and hug trees and talk to the furry creature of the forest in Pocahontas style, you know, which is certainly better than the John Wayne stereotypes, but it's still stereotypes, you know. <laughs> so it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a tricky history that uh, sometimes I forget just because I've been exposed to it for so long. And so I forget that it's like certain things that are obvious to me are not obvious to everybody because and then I realize, of course, they are not obvious. Because they've never been exposed to them. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a really crazy history.
0: Well, what's amazing, Danielle, is it's not even, you know, I think the same thing all the time. But it's like, let's just bring us to the present moment. Because you pull probably 10 people off the street and and talk about the United States Empire. Uh-huh. And they'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? I mean, I've had people say, like, are you talking about Star Wars? Like, I don't oh, yeah. understand using the word empire is so confusing. When you look back... Uh, not even a hundred years ago, and United States officials, including the president and his cabinet, were talking about renaming the United States to Imperial America or Greater America simply because of the acquisition of territories at the time. Let alone the thousand plus bases that you know we have all over the planet now. So let's pivot to a little bit about this um, because I'm really curious of your insight as a historian of of just. Echoes of the past, like for example, I mean, we hear this old adage: like history repeats itself all the time. Of course, a little simplistic, but I think a more accurate one is that history echoes sure. throughout the present. Um, so, I guess talk about talk about how fucked up things are today, and how like how do you compare this bizarre period to times past?
2: I think one big difference in terms of empire building is that. The U.S. emerged at a time when empires were becoming less popular, or at least outward-inspired, empire in the traditional sense, which was uh, you go in, you conquer another country, you add their land base to your land base, and now those people are your subject, and you know that was the traditional way of uh, conquer- building an empire. That started becoming less palatable, both because you, it kind of was too... It was too obvious, it was becoming less accepted, this idea that just naked force going in and taking over was the way to go. And also, in a sneaky way, because people started figuring out that you can get the same benefits without having to actually take responsibility then for all the people you have conquered, for actually having to provide infrastructure and all of that. You can just set up a puppet government, squeeze whatever resources you want out of the nation and not have to deal with them. I mean, there, there's one story that's actually trippy. When you think about the last major war that led to territorial acquisition for the United States on a massive scale, like when you think about like Mexican-American war in 1846 to 1848, you know, U.S. acquired a ton of land. Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, California, plus a bunch of little pieces of states all around it, from Oklahoma to Nevada and so on, the thing was, there was at one point this debate of saying, well, we defeated Mexico. Why not just take over the whole thing? Why not just go all the way down to the bottom where it borders Guatemala and take over the entire place?
0: Wow.
2: And one of the uh, one of the reasons why Mexico didn't have to deal with that was because some it was actually, quote unquote, thanks to racism. Because some people are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. If we take over Mexico, then all those people become our citizens. Oh Wow. And no, we don't want all those brown people to be our citizens. So how about we can take as much land as possible with as few Mexicans as possible? So if we cut the border right there where it is, there, that's a lot of land. And, you know, those play, don't get me wrong. There are definitely Mexican people living there but not nearly to the population density that you found a little further south. So it's like, how about we cut the line there, we got the land, we got fewer Mexicans, and then we can just do whatever we want with the Mexican government to get resources out of there. And that's and that became the model for how you do empire in the late 1800s, early 1900s, less in the open, less just taking over land and adding it to your land base, and more just indirect exploitation. It's still in empire, but it's uh, it's in a less recognizable form.
0: Yeah, and, and then when you couple in the cultural influence and um, homogenization and hegemony, it, it becomes very all-encompassing. I mean, you look at the financialization and the privatization and these debt models that are imposed on these countries, it, it becomes really really nuts, because it's far beyond just the military, military, excuse me, it's far beyond the military control that's exerted at these points around the world. And I I love that you dive into these incredible chapters of history, because I'm so passionate about history. I'm so passionate about it, because it shapes everything that we understand today. Um, But it seems like people have sort of a historical amnesia about like, what precipitated this current moment, I think, in part, the lack of historical political education in this country, maybe the 24 hour news cycle. Like, I don't know, but I love that you're a history buff and I love that you study these patterns. And I guess when we're looking at empire, I mean, I guess the last big empire that was folded into ours was the British Empire, mm-hmm. which simply waned and fell into position as like a junior collaborator under US rule, never really had to face collapse. Like, right. we've never seen anything like what we're going to see here. In the yeah. world, not if, but when. And especially entering this new era of multipolarity with Russia and China as counterbalancing forces against US hegemony, all of which will inevitably come into great conflict and war with each other again. And, but, Daniele, there's a very unique difference here, and that's the vast technological resources and institutional network to ensure control and essentially longevity like this is global.
2: Yeah, that's the big difference with the past. You know, civilizations have uh, risen and collapsed a thousand times before, but every time the collapse was regional. And, you know, the reports would be felt, but it was still a regional thing. Now we are in a state where everything is so interdependent on one another, our culture, our products, our everything. It's that an imperial collapse is not something that you can say, oh well, well it happened in that one area of the world and that's it. It's going to affect everything, and that's the part that's a little scarier because whereas if uh, there's a collapse somewhere and there's when there's a global collapse and you're talking about an environment that's already stretched beyond the carrying capacity, an environment that's highly polluted, uh, you know these are kind of existential threats, more so than they were before, where it sure has, you know, it certainly felt like the end of the world if you are right in the middle of the events, but if you were a continent over, you would not feel it as much. This, on the other hand, is something that we are bound to feel across the globe. I mean, even the fact that even if you look at COVID, like something that starts as a virus in one place and in about three and a half seconds is everywhere... That shows you how everything is interconnected. You know, even before with uh, major epidemics, they would spread, but they would spread over years. You know, it would take quite a while for things to go from point A to point B. Now it's everything happen immediately, which means that the collapse, unless you have immediate easy solutions, uh, you are kind of screwed at a global level, which is a fairly terrifying prospect.
0: <laughs> what similarities do you see with? I don't even know. I mean, just the fact uh, like we're talking about the imperial collapse, like uh, how uh, it does seem kind of like the death throes, like in a weird sense. I think things are becoming increasingly desperate. People are becoming unhinged and uncoupled and untethered from like a plane of reality that we can all agree on. But it does seem like the establishment has also learned from like rome right i mean these people are are extremely smart they are they are students of history as well and they have learned from the mistakes of the past and so they that is also kind of a scary thought it's like how how far is this going to go and i guess what similarities do you see today compared to empires that have fallen in the past i guess
2: that's the thing though that i Sometimes you got to wonder about people's intelligence, because if you look <laughs> at something like ancient Rome, there were you could see the signals that things were about to go down the drain from three hundred years earlier, you know, and it's like and there are people who clearly called attention to it, and the people in position of power regularly squashed it in a way that it wasn't just evil, it was also stupid because it's like it's one thing that you are evil like twirling your mustache while you are just thinking about getting your own out of greed and screwing over everyone else. But that doesn't really work if you are, if the whole society that you depend on collapses and, and your wealth and your position of privilege and everything else is tied to that society. And they are not taking those basic steps to ensure that that society will survive, maybe in a modified form, by allowing that to happen. You know, Roman ultra-wealthy landowners never did all those land reforms that would have probably kept the republic going a whole lot longer, prevented it from turning into an empire, could have done a lot in that direction, and it was visible to everybody, and they never did, out of pure, damn greed. And sometimes I feel that similar things happen today, because when you look at something... I mean, there are certain things that are not even po- shouldn't be political in a strict sense. In the sense that if you think about it, regardless of your political philosophy, religion, or whatever ideology, nobody like to drink poisoned water or like to have uh, horrendous toxins in the air you breathe. Those are basic things that we should all agree on, regardless of politics, right? It is like if you wanna ensure that your kids and your grandkids will get to enjoy certain things you have you want to make sure that at least the basic natural resources around you survive the fact that we're doing such an awful job at it and again this is something that will hurt everybody of course hurting poor people first but at the end of the day it's gonna hurt everybody there's no capsule you can build where you can isolate yourself from a collapsing ecosystem they're just So even the richest, wealthiest, most elite person is actually playing a damn game by not doing those things that would allow them to continue being in a position of power and success for generation to come. It's almost like short-term greed overrides even their own self-interest if you take a slightly longer view of time as long as it's uh, you know nobody's saying you need to be smart or enlightened or sweet even purely out of short of, of your own self-interest you should want to create certain a certain setups so that the environment thrives so that we don't live in a polluted place so that we don't mind the basis of a society through social conflict so you know that would be the smart way to be at the top and running the show. But these folks don't even seem to be good at that, you know, which is like, come on, man. It's like uh, it's a pretty low bar to ask to look out of your own self-interest first, but asking you to do it long term. And even that seems like too much to ask.
0: I want to put a pin in that because I want to expand on that. But first, I mean, it, it is so funny that we keep going back to Rome when we think of like the pinnacle of like what empire encompasses and what it depicts and how it inevitably ends but why was it so hedonistic um you know there is this like very cartoonish aspect of it you know the vomitoriums the mass orgies like yeah I get that we kind of our society, you know, we like to see that. Vi- like, first of all, all the violence is externalized. A lot of it is. And then a right. lot of, it, of course, is committed by the state, right? You know, where we yep. all see on TV. But there is this sort of detachment where people back then were just like, there's like a very, like, over the top. Was that just like, <laughs> like Empire Baby Syndrome? Like, I guess you can kind of compare it to how it is today, but it just seems like very over the top.
1: Yeah.
2: I mean, the role more just completely psychotic society. When you look at it from the those guys, their relationship with violence was disturbing to say the least. You know? They thrived thanks to violence because they were more effective at it than anybody else. They their culture was insanely violent, not just from the military standpoint, but also I mean think about that. The father of the family, the head of the household, had the power of life and death on everybody in his household. You could beat your kids to that and never run into any problem. You could, uh, uh, provided that your wife's family wasn't too powerful, you could kill your wife without anybody looking twice. That was the kind, you know, for entertainment, you go see people torn apart by lions and the gladiators. And those guys took a passion for violence uh, just a tad too far. Which kind of makes sense, considering that their whole society was based on uh, military expansion. And in some way, it was a reflection of a society that whose success was based on uh, successful violence, of being able to dish it out, being able to take it without being freaked out, being able to. So that culture was just immersed in violence in every aspect of their lives. Uh, ours, there's definitely a lot of violence. There's definitely, but you know, in many cases, because, uh, most people are not going to be serving in Germany tomorrow to extend the boundaries of the empire. Uh, a lot of it is more movies and video games as in the culture, but it's a lot of talk, you know, for many people is uh, they have a very violent imagination, but most of the time they are not going to actually deal with it in their day to day life the same way.
0: Right. And and a lot of it, even though there's a lot of violence being committed and perpetuated, like, for yeah. example, I mean, war is just a constant state. It's mm-hmm. never really stopped. Yeah. And but of course, a, a lot of people are propagandized, um, yeah. totally conditioned to in this abstraction where that doesn't even exist, of course, because the bombs aren't dropping on us but at the same time it's this propaganda model that has become so sophisticated first of all i mean even learning from the last 30 years it's it's neoliberalism packaged in humanitarianism um yeah. because of course the bush administration's attempts to expand empire were you know people look back at that in horror and so now i feel like they've they've learned even from themselves in the past couple of decades is what i'm saying and if, and then when you couple that with the sophistication of data mining and personalizing um, our profiles, these psychological profiles that are collected and sold, preying on our subconscious mind, integrated for political mechanisms of social control. But despite all of this, the messaging and disinformation probably contains a lot of like rudimentary similarities that you've seen echoes of in the past as well.
2: For sure. And, you you know, you're absolutely right. You have to figure out a way to tailor it to today because, uh I mean, even if you just go back a few decades without going back that far, for a while it was an easy campaign because all you had to do is that you are against communism and whatever needs to be done is because of the red threat. And then, you know, you had a pass on whatever you did because it's like, oh, it's because we need to stop communism and, you know, how evil communism is and as such, anything, you know, what does that mean you're a communist? if you are against us that means you are you're cheerleading for stalin and it's like, well, no, sometimes it's slightly more complicated than that, but in the logic of the Cold War, there was no such thing right. It was just you're either on one side of the line and you have to embrace an ultra right wing version of American politics or you are with Stalin. There's nothing. <laughs> and it's like well you know and that's actually like when you look back at some of the ways as um, you know look at for example the chairman of the House of Un-American Activities Committee right when they were investigating communism they were asking how can you tell if somebody's a communist and you know let's say let's say that you came to the conclusion that communism was truly this evil terrible thing that needed to be stopped then you take it seriously let's start with that assumption okay then the next step would be that you are after real communism, like the cases that fit that exact image of what we're talking about. The chairman of the House of Un-American Activities Committee came out and said, if anybody said that there is a racial discrimination in this country, they are a communist. And this is, you know, 1950s, where it's in the books, racial discrimination. is not an opinion, it's a fact. Or, you know, if anybody insists on... Uh, Inequality of wealth in the United States, that means you're a communist. And again, you're talking about a society where you have homeless people and billionaires. Of course, there's inequality of wealth. That's not even up for debate. It's not even an opinion. That's just like saying the sun is out. But if you say that, then you're a communist and you're on the other side of this. uh, There's only option A and option B. And if you're not with us, you're against us. kind of thing. And that then was used to justify just about every other intervention in Latin America, every other intervention kind of all over the world is, well, they are now with us, so clearly they must be Stalin folks. Despite the fact that half of the time, it had nothing to do with communism. But that was you know the easy propaganda way to, to sell it. Today, I think they are missing the good old days of the Cold War, so they have to figure out other ways to package it. Because that was really simple. Now you have to find other ways. But at the end of the day, it's always the same story, right? Is that there are certain interests that are very well served by continuous wars. And they need to get enough people on board, or at least not to care about it, so that they can keep doing business as usual and reap the benefits of it.
0: Well, it does seem like an extreme level of cognitive dissonance, because on one hand, you have like this progressivism that's taken root. Like you know consciousness that has expanded in profound ways about huh. ident- gender identity um yeah. you know equality like all even i don't know i mean it, you know what i'm saying and then at the same time it's like this capacity for indiscriminate violence that is almost accepted as like a normalized state like it's it's almost background noise like i mean i think the war in ukraine was an interesting example of how Um, The media can agitate and not that I'm discounting people's outrage over it. Of course, it's horrific. But like I said before, war is happening all the time. And so it did seem, um, you know, it did seem like the media was was picking this apart from a lot of other things and not giving Uh. other things like Yemen and Somalia and Afghanistan due time. Um, Not to say that Ukraine is not worthy of coverage, but it was definitely different. Right. And it, it it is interesting. I mean it just it's just so interesting like the level of propaganda and the impact of propaganda that can dissociate yourself from like your own government's actions and gin up um very, very strong emotions about the other. Mm-hmm. About Russia, about China and Even if you have disagreements with those governments all day, chances are you probably know very little about the structure of their society, their political system, the historical context of how all these things happen. And so there is just this incredible exploitation and manipulation of our emotions and our fear, just those innate fears of not something that's different than us, right? I think that there's so many people who make a
2: living through fear and outrage, because they realize that those are even more than sex and violence. Fear and outrage are those things that our brains are wired to. So anything that's scary, you click and see what is what threats do I need to protect myself from? Things that you feel these uh, self-righteous outrage are going to get attention. So there's a ton of people who know that that's how what masses of people are going to consume and they feed it to them 24-7. And it's, you know, it's horrible, but it's like, what are you going to do? Just say you don't have the right to say the things, crack down on, uh, like, freedom of the press. Free- now, of course, that's not the idea. But at the same time, you realize, shit, this is not helpful, because in a situation where people are not particularly well-educated about issues, having somebody who's screaming fear and outrage all day and feeding them, Usually by taking some highly selective piece of reality, blowing it out of proportion, stretching it, not including all those aspects of reality that don't fit the deal that will increase fear and outrage, and just dishing it out left and right all day long. People make a living on that. You know, there are plenty of people that I'm sure you can think of, I can think of who just laugh all the way to the bank. Some of them are true believers and they do it in the name of mm-hmm. an ideology. Some, they do it in the name of no ideology other than making money, and they're like, who cares? I'm feeding all these idiots what they want to hear, and I make money in the process. Great. Of course, in the process of these making things more awful, nastier, making the political discourse pretty much impossible to address, because everybody's just angry beyond imagination and running on stereotypes all day long. And that's... That's where we're at. you know. That's, uh, and in that sense, is one of those cases where something like internet, which gave us fantastic opportunities and allowed many more voices to emerge. Well, unfortunately, beside the good, that they, it's qualitative. It doesn't differentiate, right? There's many great voices that emerge. So thank you, internet. And then there's also a bunch of shit that comes up that makes life considerably worse for most people. It's like, oh,
0: that's where we are. Yeah. And it, it, it is almost overwhelming where it's like the the idea of knowing that the world's information is at your fingertips is almost like it almost like re, it has like a weird reversion back to where you almost want the comfort of like not having the idea that you need to learn everything. I don't even Perfect. know if that makes it's like every time you go online, you're peddled with constant news and stories of, like, tragedy and trauma, even if you're not trying to. It's like you oh, just yeah. check your email and you're like, oh, fuck everyone. Like, I mean, yep. is that is that driving more people to conspiracism, magical thinking, and myths having this inundation For sure. of
2: information? 100%. That's why when I go on social media, I try to make a point of clicking on pictures of cute, fluffy puppies <laughs> that click on themselves or stuff like that. And suddenly, by... My feed is all uh, fluffy puppies who do funny things, you know, because it's like uh, if I want to go there and find out what's going on, I will. But I also need not to be bombarded 24-7 through things that make me feel like the whole world is horrible and evil. So I think it's really important for one's mental health sometimes to say unplug from that. Uh, Let's start with the cute puppies.
0: Yeah, especially because it's not natural. Like, n- none of this is naturally how your brain is supposed to, um, input information or digest it or anything like that. It's actually pretty unhealthy and, and there is no assessment. Of course, we are all the guinea pigs in this and there's no assessment from these tech overlords that are like, you know what? This actually is probably like hurting mental health. Like, oh, maybe we should ease off on that. No, they're just pushing it to the, to the limit, dude, because this is all about money. We are just data entry points for the people who are raking it in. Um, But, and it's just disturbing, Daniele, because as we're talking yeah. about, I mean, everyone, you know, we are already so alienated and it's like, what is this doing to fragment us even more, you know? It's just and really it's not, trippy to uh, think uh, about.
2: You, uh, you, no, 100%. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy to some degree, because you have things where, like I was thinking about people who made a career of highlighting the more batshit crazy things going on on the other side of the political divide. And, you know, let's say take like, I don't know, everybody does it, so it doesn't even matter the example. But what ends up happening is that by casting what's maybe, you know, if you buy into a left versus right divide, you take something that's like the batshit extremist version of the other side, you shine a spotlight on it, you try to cast it as that's what all of those guys are, which is like, well, no, not really. That's like maybe at most five percent of those guys. But you, you start showing how terrible and awful it is. Now you have the guys on the other side who feel that, oh shit, I actually don't agree with that crazy batshit five percent, but I almost feel like I have to defend them because it's my ideological enemies who are saying this is uh, this is my people. So I guess we got to defend them. And then before you know it, what used to be an extremist, batshit, crazy position start becoming the norm. Because that half of the political spectrum has to defend it because it's been attacked by their enemies. And so in the process, we take the more extremist, disturbing position and actually normalize them in essentially with a trick by saying, This is who you guys are. And then because of the duality of it, you feel the need to defend even the people within, quote, unquote, your ideological camp. Realistically, you don't have a whole lot in common with You look at them and you think, yeah, those people are actually crazy. They have issues. But but if the other guys criticize them, well, I guess I'll have to defend them. And so in the process, the very people who are complaining about, oh, the crazies on the other side, are actually doing the greatest service to increase their numbers by, by making it an ideological camp kind of thing and by normalizing it among their ideological enemies. So it's a completely perverted kind of game that leads to the opposite of what we want, which is, you know, take people on in any ideology where at the absolute extreme scary part and, Don't pay them so much attention. Don't shine the spotlight all the time. Like, because the process of doing so actually increases their power in a paradoxical kind of way. So to me, like, you take like the Jordan Peterson of the world complaining about uh, evil social justice warriors. Actually, I feel that they are the guys who have done the most to normalize that type of idea and to make it more popular and vice versa, because, you know, people do it all over the place. But I think like when people are in these political tribes and they feel the need to defend themselves against their enemies, they will start giving room to folks who theoretically are in their own ideological camp, even though their ideas are clearly not something that most people uh, share at all.
0: Holy shit, there's so much that you just said. I mean, first of all, I heard you saying that you, as a social experiment, kind of, you know, friended a lot of people on Facebook 10 years ago and over the course of the last decade have seen the trend of more negative reinforcement of, like, the feedback loop perpetuating. Yep. I don't know if it's through the algorithm or what or if it's just the state of social media and what it does to someone, but I, I thought that that was really fascinating because there's something bizarre about, like, how fast the news cycle moves on and it's like like just take for example this horrific massacre that just happened in buffalo that feels like an eternity ago because of how casual and like not only how like common and casual like indiscriminate violence is but like how fast the news cycle moves on it's just like on to the next one like this low level anxiety of like mass death and suffering is like this white noise in your brain and at some point, Danielle, it has to break, like especially when you incorporate your own suffering and experiences and tragedy that is bound to happen.
2: Yeah, that's why it's so important to, you know, one end you want to be aware of what's out there and that's important. And I definitely don't advocate isolating yourself and not watching the news and becoming more ignorant of the realities out there. At the same time, it's important to find A place to feed yourself with things that make you happy, to remind yourself that what you are seeing in outrage sites all day long on the internet is not actual reality. Not everybody is like that out there. And and really to find those things that encourage dialogue, that encourage you to have uh, uh, the ability to have a pleasant conversation, even with people who may not be 100% on board with everything you think, And to bring that to the forefront in terms of our mental health, because clearly none of this stuff is doing us any favor in terms of mental health, both collectively and individually.
0: I love that you brought up Jordan Peterson, because I was going to reference his argument while not saying his name, because I didn't know how you felt about it. But I wanted you to like address the the core argument of kind of I call him like a status quo defender. Um, And, you know, you've talked about the ridiculous levels of inequality that continue to grow, according to someone like him this is human nature danieli i mean hierarchy is natural in the animal world so why should the human world be any different because it's not the result of a system or structure it's basically individualized it's our own fault that we're poor or maybe marginalized or whatever and it's just about you know it's the whole it's the whole pick yourself up by your bootstraps mentality yep. just kind of repackaged and the pro- the biggest problem and i want your comment on this of course is like Yeah, it's important to take agency and work on yourself, of course, but when you're absolving everything beyond the individual experience, like, you know, the economic and social structures that do perpetuate unequal distribution, and you could apply that same kind of fatalistic thinking to, like, slavery and feudalism, too. Oh, yeah, completely, completely.
2: Yeah, it reminds you of like that uh, late 1800s, early 1900s when the mentality was like, if you are poor, it's because God hates you kind of thing. (laughs)
3: Because God rewards
2: success, so clearly it's your own fault. And it's like, and, and you know, what you just said is funny because you think about it, it's such an obvious argument that we should all agree with, right? It's the idea that, of course, individual responsibility is important. Of course, individual agency is not to be discounted. And of course, there are certain social conditions that need to be addressed because not everybody, not everything boils down to the individual level. Both of those things are hundred percent true, and so it doesn't take a genius to realize that yes, you need to create certain social structures that encourage more, more, the likelihood of more pleasant outcomes for the greater number of people, and at the same time, you don't want to just absolve people completely of individual responsibilities, like okay, well, clearly, who would possibly disagree with that? But instead, we end up in these camps where you either deny individual agency completely, and it's all about the social structure and politics, or none of that exists, and it's all the pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And it's like, how do we get to be that dumb? Because it takes effort, you know? It's like, it's so... Like, the right answer is so obvious there, that it really takes effort to choose to be that dumb. Now, in some cases, I think it actually is a choice and that's, you know, maybe poor education or whatever it is. In other cases is people have vested interest in pushing certain arguments. But yeah, it's bizarre to to think that we are in a place where if you say individual responsibility, that means that you automatically must not care about the politics or the social structure or 10,000 factors that will affect individuals. And vice versa, if you address those things, that means that individual responsibility matters nothing. It's like, why? There does seem
0: to be like a nihilism that is associated with... um our reality right now. And I completely understand it. There's cataclysmic changes going on with the climate there, you know, global pollution. It's a lot of integrated things that are multifaceted. The the thing is, it's like, I, I'm also excited because I, obviously the status quo is trash. Like it's not good enough. Sure. This should be an exciting thing that we should all be like, how can we make things better? Like very, like we need to build a utopian vision of something that we want it seems interesting like a lot of sci-fi literature and art back decades ago seemed to be more in line with like utopian alternatives of what the future would be like i mean even just look at star trek it's like pretty Mm -hmm. incredible and now it just seems like it's all about like all right we're inevitably going to have like a total armageddon and so we just need to deal with the fact that we will be in a post-apocalyptic world (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> right, right,
2: right, right. I think it's tricky because, uh, like, why do people love the kind of political stories that they do? Because they are always built on demonizing some particular group, some particular ideological camp. And even when you're right, even, let's say, when those people are truly awful, well, that still absolve you from finding a solution. Right, it's so much easier to point the finger and think it's all because of those assholes out there that everything is going down the drain. And the problem is that when you don't have some scapegoat out there and you have to look inside and think, like, okay, how do we solve problem A, B, and C? A lot of the time, those things are really difficult, and they cannot even when maybe there is a path toward them. They are not an easy catchy slogan that you say we'll do this. It's like no, there are layers and layers of complexity to try to find solution to the real major issues that we're facing. That's both really difficult require tremendous level of nuance, tremendous level of knowledge. It's not an easy thing to do. So that's why I think it's in the face of uh, getting a hint of that. That is a very disempowering feeling when you realize how finding a real solution, how hard it really is it's so much easier to oh just tell me a story about those assholes on the other side so that i can feel better by by feeling that it's all their fault and it's it's a cop out you know it's a cop out because ultimately what you said is like which would be the greatest exercise that we can all engage in is like how do we find the solutions to problem a b and c and so many things they were facing, from mental health crisis to environmental crisis to social, the, the list is never ending. Mm-hmm. That would be the thing to do, and yet it's a really hard thing to do. Never mind the fact that there are also interests that don't want you to do it.
0: Right, and of course the education needs to be the first thing. Is like we all need to like learn the problem, I guess. Right, I guess that that's the part that I can't get my head around is like the amount of work to go back to the basics here yeah. learning critical media literacy like understanding how to dissect the information that are that's coming at us as you just articulated that, ha- that there's a lot of vested interests behind the avenues right and the channels that we consume on a daily basis
2: mike I'm yeah gonna... and i think one of the tricky parts is that save for the most absolutely batshit crazy arguments, take even arguments that you strongly disagree with. You're likely to find one, two, three, ten 10% of stuff that where they are right, where there's something where they are putting the finger on a real problem or maybe they are making a good argument or something. The problem is that they take whatever partial truth they like, they stretch it way beyond the boundaries of what's actually wise to do so, They ignore all contradictory evidence that doesn't fit that partial truth. And boom, now you're promoting this very stereotypical view of reality that does nothing to solve the problems we actually have. It's not that everybody, you know, the people who are truly awful thinkers are stupid and wrong on everything. They are not. It's just that they take aspects and limit their vision to that particular partial aspect of reality, which then ends up, doing whatever it is they were trying to do
1: um you know bringing up the jordan peterson like human nature is hierarchical and all that stuff it, it actually reminded me of a a dosed fact that i learned a while back that i constantly think about um You know, I think number one is like the whole thing about patriarchy and the oppression of women, the domination of men over women. Like this is just a natural human thing because it exists throughout human history, which, of course, is really talking about starting with human history with the beginning of like civilization, quote unquote civilization and the amassing of wealth and agriculture and things like that, where, you know, human life for the majority of homo sapiens on the planet was not that you know it's not just um you know chris ryan of course writes a lot about this but there's an anthropologist named evelyn reed who's done a lot of work around this too about how matriarchy and like kind of communal raising of children and non-monogamy like all these things were human nature was not to exist in a society where there is the brutal oppression of women and of course in in the past it was much much more brutal than it it was today but also kind of going back to this argument of and this is the fact that i wanted to get to that well look at the animal kingdom look at mammals look at chimpanzees look at mm-hmm. the elk look at elephants there is an alpha male and so men today should strive to be the alpha male because this we lost our connection to nature and in the the animal world in particular the mammal world it's all about the alpha male the big the strong the one that acts dominating the one who's mean and then he has this harem of females that he has access to breeding with and um In reality, I mean, of course, it looks that way when you look at it. You see the big elk with the biggest horn surrounded by all the females. But in reality, in all of those social groups, it is the females that select the alpha male. So it's not just about being the biggest and most dominating one and beating all the other ones in the fight. There are frequently like coups where all of the females, whether it's and this is true in chimpanzees, it's true in like all of these social groups that that have like breeding uh, styles like this. The, the females will get together and be like, you know what, we're kind of over this guy. Like he's not treating us how we want, and they just oust him and then just select another one. And so if you're really going to go based off of nature and, and we should emulate the animal kingdom, then it actually is in a way it is matriarchal. Like, <laughs> <laughs> in a completely different way, um, but you know, I did want to pivot to. Be, we're going to take some calls in a second, and there's a bunch of people in the queue. We want to be able to get to them, but I did want to pivot to something uh, fun to talk to you about. Not that, that all the stuff, other stuff hasn't been fun, but it's also heavy. Um,
2: the apocalypse is not fun. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I was like, yeah, let's talk more about the capacity of humans for extreme violence and massacres, <laughs> which uh, which was a question that we are skipping. Um, but um, uh, yeah, Let's I, lighten it up a little bit. So like our, you know, the, the work that Abby and I do is very much in the world of politics and political history and political struggle. Um, and you're, you know, of course, you, as, as you talk about, you're very much in the world of martial arts in addition to other things. But there are definitely... Times where martial arts and politics overlap, and I think that's a really fun history. Um, you know of course, like for example, like Japan and its closed off period, I mean clearly martial arts played a very major political component, like having a caste system, and one of those castes being those who could learn martial arts and the rest of the people couldn't, it was part of the political structure um, but there's also many other uh, examples of this also, and uh, Daniela, you uh, told me you're working on something about a woman in the suffrage movement in the United Kingdom, that I think was a really cool example of the world of martial arts and the world of not just politics, but political struggle coming together. And so I was hoping you could kind of tell us that story a little bit.
2: Yeah, this is a fun one. I, uh, I just finished doing the research and recorded the episode. I'll be releasing it probably at some point later in the year. The story of Edith Garrod who was this lady. In, um, she was born in the latter part of the 1800s in the UK. She was a PE instructor. Her husband was a wrestler and a boxer. So she learned some stuff already with him. And then she was exposed to the first uh, jiu-jitsu, Japanese jiu-jitsu teachers to come to the United Kingdom at the very beginning of the 1900s. And she was this tiny lady, but she loved training. She, loved, she became good at it. And she, I mean, it's funny, you can still see pictures today if you Google her name where you see her in like Victorian dress doing a flying scissor, which is this highly acrobatic jujitsu move, taking down a guy or wrist locking guys. And there she was, she became one of the very first women to become a martial arts instructor in the Western world. And this was at a time when the suffrage movement was dealing with the fact that the police would regularly beat the living hell out of suffragettes during demonstrations so some of the suffragettes started going to Edith Garrett's classes to ask them to to ask her to train them so that they would be able to deal with the police a little more effectively both in terms of just literal self defense you know she would teach them how to put uh, layers of cotton on their ribs so that the cops wouldn't break their ribs by whacking them with sticks but also taught them how to fight. And so there was this old group that was referred to as the bodyguard, who was the, there were some 30 odd women were the bodyguard for the leader of this one branch of uh, the suffrage movement would protect her and regularly get into giant fights with the cops about it. And so it's a pretty crazy story when you see Edith Garrod was this Barely five foot tall lady was this absolute badass teaching women how to both defend themselves when it came to politics, defend themselves when it came to the extremely high rate of spousal abuse that they had to deal with at the time. Well, not that like today it doesn't exist or anything, but definitely even more so back then. It's, uh, it's a pretty trippy story, the idea of like, one of the first women in the Western world to learn, learn jiu-jitsu long before the Gracie's made it a big deal in Brazil or any of that. This was happening in the UK, and she became the main teacher of the more radical suffragettes. It's, uh, when I heard of the story, I'm like, oh, man, this is made for me. I love this <laughs>
0: combines so many things that I like.
2: I can't wait to get into it. So, yeah, that's a fun
1: one.
0: I can't wait to hear it. It's
1: <laughs> I mean it's so funny. It's like it, so the women suffered the the struggle to win the right to vote in the United Kingdom. It, it just had so much brutal, like violent repression by the police that you then had these like mobs of women who just had become like jujitsu practitioners. Like, I wonder what the cops yeah. are thinking at that time. They're like, wait, like all of a sudden they start noticing more and more people are like pretty good at defending themselves. Like, wait, what's going on here?
2: Yeah, no, it's wild. It's a it's a really fun story because I, I mean, some of it was from the cops were a little. Uh, over-eager in uh, cracking down on the protesters. And the other one was also there were just men in the audience who were pissed off seeing women demonstrating for the right to vote, and they would just go out and beat them up. And so the idea of... Um, because clearly that challenged their patriarchal view of reality in a way that pissed them off. And so they are like, I'll give you some old-fashioned violence to put you back in place and that it garrod was like well if you want to go that way maybe we can do something about it
1: you know it's funny cuz i looked up the story when you mentioned it to me and i i saw a couple references that about how like the women's suffrage movement in the uk uh, around that time that you're talking about like it they use this term like it became increasingly violent the suffrage oh. movement and it's like well, well no it, they started to use violence to defend the violence was coming from the cops and the men who didn't want it and they just once they start defending themselves it's like oh they became increasingly yeah. yeah violent.
0: those unruly women
2: yeah i think they there's a whole argument of how some of them were terrorists which is a really weird argument because they weren't really attacking Like there were a couple of cases where, yeah, one lady threw an axe at the prime minister. There was one lady just whacked Churchill with a whip right in the face. There are a couple (laughs) of those that happened. But for the most part, these were women that embraced the idea of destruction of property, to make a point. So they would set fire to the house of some lord when the lord wasn't there and there was nobody there. But it was property destruction, which... People can agree or disagree with that as a tactic, but that's very different from targeting civilians for murder or otherwise. So the whole idea of they were terrorists is like, well, that's a really elastic definition of terrorism. If you start including property destruction, you put it on the same plane as uh, going after random civilians to murder to make a point.
0: Oh, yeah. And then, I mean, just the arbitrary Uh, definition today that can apply to whatever basically the ruling class wants to, you know, paint their adversaries or political opponents. And just like Malcolm X said, if you're not careful, the newspapers will have you hating the people who are being oppressed and loving the people who are doing the oppressing. And it kind of reminds me of Palestine, honestly, because this is a group of people who've been called terrorists for simply fighting an illegal occupation for 70 years. And, you know, it just must feel so bizarre to turn on BBC and have people telling you how to throw a Molotov cocktail to kill a Russian soldier in a tank. Meanwhile, you're being told that you're a terrorist for throwing a rock at a tank. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah, of course. It's uh, it's that old lie. that is like... Uh... If our guys do something horrible, that's the brave patriotic duty If their guys do it, they are evil and terrible that's always i, I that always cracks me up when i historically if I shine the spotlight on some horrendous massacre and it's done by communist everybody's like oh yeah those evil people if it's done by nazis it's like oh yeah they were evil if it's done if suddenly i bring up like milai massacre Mm -hmm. it's like well you need to understand (laughs) there are a lot of pressure and that's different and it's like well that's not how it works you don't get to pick depending on who's doing the raping and killing if you approve of it or not that's that's not exactly a principal stance. It's like, it sucks regardless of who does it. You know, it's a terrible thing across the board. But no, nope, it's one of those, if my guys do it, it's fine. If their guys do it, they are evil.
0: Well, before we take calls, I wanted to leave with just this one, another old adage that I want you to comment on here. And that's history has always been written by the victors, which is essentially it's true, Daniele. I mean, the colonizers, the oppressors, the ones who wage and win the wars are typically the ones who have set the narrative, you know, I mean, so I guess it's a twofold question. One, how do you dive through the archives of some of these ancient tales and find these incredible stories of resistance or heroism? And also, do you see this concept changing now that people do have more agency and tools to tell their own stories?
2: Yeah, I mean, when you go into the past, it's hard. Sometimes there are stories when you know, you look at like ancient Rome with like millions of people being slaves and there's hardly a line written by a slave about their own experience. It's nuts when you think about it. So you yeah. have to go through sec- through other sources. You have to make a lot of like infer conclusions. But, you know, it's, it's not a good process if, uh, you know, if you could have access to. Actual people telling you about their own experiences would be a very different story. So those are the cases where history is truly written by the wind inside. I mean, I even did a story at one point that was, uh, it's not 2,000 years ago, it's like 200 years ago, and it's not in an illiterate place in the middle of nowhere, it's in China, where clearly records are being kept. And there's this tale of this lady who became the head of the most powerful pirate confederacy in history. Like if you put together all the pirates in the Caribbean, there were maybe like six, 7,000 people at any one time. This lady had other her own command, a fleet of 60,000. She beat the British Navy. She beat the Portuguese Navy. She beat, uh, she beat the Chinese Navy. She got to a point where the Chinese government was like, what do we need to do to make you stop? And she was like, well, we keep all our money and you give a pardon to all my men. And the Chinese government was like, done, here you go. And she happily retired. I mean, you don't normally hear stories of pirates winning. You know, eventually they always catch you. And she did. It's like there's no comparison to anything that ever happened in the history of piracy to her story. And when you dig through her sources, there's a page two, three that you find information about her. There's so little. So I managed to put together an episode by extending it to the whole history of piracy in China at the time. Talk about some of the social conditions and stuff. I wanted to do something that was purely a biography affair. And I realized, yeah, I, I can tell that story in 10 minutes. You know, there's really not that much to go on. And this is a huge story in China 200 years ago. Not, and even that's hard to find information on. So that tells you that, yeah, clearly it's hard to dig up the history from the past when you're not talking about the stories seen from the mainstream version. Of course, that's probably going to be different in the future, just because there's so much more that's being written and published today than there ever was, even just a century or two ago. So future history may look different.
0: Absolutely. All right, you guys. Daniele, Belele, are you willing to stay on and talk to a few of these people who've been waiting in the queue? Sure. Let's Let's play. Let's do
1: it. Okay, everybody. I'm going to make sure that when you get called on, you take yourself off mute. Tell us where you are calling from and try to keep your questions and comments short so we could get to all of the callers. First, we're going to hear from Alex. Take yourself off mute. Tell us where you're calling from.
3: Hello. Can you guys hear me? We can. Loud and nope. clear. Hey, I'm calling from Oregon. Uh, it's nice to hear from you guys. Uh, like a conversation. I like this idea that you have, Daniele, of that we can't lose ourselves to depression when we're looking at all of these, uh, you know, tough issues. And I know from personal experience that that kind of turns people off from even starting to look at them. I had a mm-hmm. conversation with my brother recently, and uh, he basically told me that um, every time he talks to me, it makes him sad. <laughs> and that... uh I must be depressed all the time because I, you know, look at these things or you know, I read history, and I told him that I don't see it that way, and that actually I see hope in all of this because the only way that we're going to change anything is if we're educated on what's going on, because the way we got here is by not understanding what's going on, and if we don't know what's going on, we're going to, you know, fall into those simple solutions that. You know, maybe like fascists are pushing, and uh, those are what gets get people to do you know ugly things that don't help anyone. So, yeah, I just feel like um, I, what I would say to all the callers is that uh, try to dose a family member today if you can. <laughs>
2: And I think it's key to, you know, what you're saying is 100% correct. I would add that maybe finding stories that are not just about horrible things that happen that we can learn from, but also yeah. some stories that are that make you feel good, that are inspiring. Where sometimes the underdog character who's doing something epic does not get crushed by the powers that be. Which, if nothing else, in terms of keeping your mood up, it helps.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, we just had Adam Conover on last week's episode, and he said something really impactful that stuck with me because I brought up the notion that, you know, humans need some sort of mythology or stories to keep them going, you know, and he was like, I don't think that they need myths, they need stories. And he was like, and if you just tell, sometimes... You know, the stories are are a lot of the times they're completely false, right? The stories that we tell ourselves. And if you knew the real story, it's actually much more interesting uh-huh. and enlightening. And so, yeah, Alex, it's it's I, I'm right there with you, my friend. And I totally agree with you. And I agree with Danielle's approach is that we can find the good and the bad and and make it light and and dose the fuck out of people while doing with them not even knowing that we're doing it right. Just telling them a better story than one that they already knew. <laughs>
3: yeah i agree 100 percent. thank
1: you alex for your call next we're going to hear from parker where are you calling from parker you are on mute oh there you go we can hear you now
3: okay sorry about that
1: i'm calling from connecticut and my question is can spirit uh can activism be a spiritual
4: process
2: A good one. I like it. I think it's important to uh, not think of spirituality as just something that you just go off on the mountain and in the midst of a cloud of incense, you meditate and kind of remove some society. Or you are in the trenches doing hard work, but also it's the opposite of spirituality and it's all just tough willpower. And I think it's uh, like in that sense, it's the very idea of karma yoga. It's about what you're referring to, which is about doing work in the world in right here, right now, now off in a separate dimension and making that your spiritual path. So the way you do it to to some degree is that you need to be 100% committed to the goal. But at the same time, you are also, and this is way easier said than done, uh, unattached to the outcome. Like you're doing it because it's the right thing to do. Whether you succeed or not, if you if you are too attached to outcome, you're bound to get bummed out and depressed a thousand times when things don't go your way, whereas to make it as this is the best I can do, this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm committed to do that's it then and just rolling through that that ability not to identify and put your ego- invest your ego into that so much, just do the work without the attachment, which again. It almost is seem like a contradiction. Ideally, it's more of a paradox than a contradiction, and you can still be able to pull it off.
0: I like that, Parker, and and I, I love that, Danieli. And I would just add that, you know, doing activism is it's where I've met everyone that I love and know. And I would just really encourage everyone who's maybe thinking about getting active or following a pursuit or something that they're really passionate about what are you waiting for because the people that you meet on that path it's it's incredible right and that becomes part of your family and um and so yeah all the all the people who are doing the work in the community trying to do everything that they can right to to make a better world it's a beautiful thing and it serves to empower and inspire each other as well
1: yeah. And I will say that, you know, it's, it's activism is something that you maybe, you know, shouldn't treat as your spiritual p- practice. You know, I definitely, you know, I became politically active around the Iraq war, having uh, gone to it and was very mad when I got home. And there was definitely a, a several year period where it was like, OK, I'm going to just go 100 percent at this. And this is everything I live and breathe every second of the day. And I probably would have been better at it had I actually taken some other space in my life to improve myself as a person in the way that I felt I did, uh, in later years. And so, yeah, I mean, there's obviously this, this balance where you gain, you would become better at the other things in your life when you, uh, kind of try to follow the path that Daniele has laid out in, in his work. Um, but thanks for your question, Parker. Uh, we're going to take the next call. Joe, you are next. Uh, where are you calling from? Hey everybody. I'm calling from the UK in the South. Nice to speak to you
4: all.
0: Good Hello. to talk to you, Joe.
4: Uh, well, this is the first time I've done something like this. So, um, yeah, I'm, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you all, um, particularly you, Danielli, because I, um, I, I've listened to loads of your stuff uh, over the last few years. And that uh, um, you and Rich and, uh, and Duncan as well, uh, you've all helped me to think about lots of stuff um, that are the bigger things in my life. And uh, so I appreciate that a lot. Thanks, man, thanks so much. Um, anyway, my question's about fear um, mm-hmm. i i'm a surgeon um, and my main sport uh, is rock climbing and uh, so I, I have to I have to think a lot about composure and about and about fear um, and really, I was after a bit of advice or a mantra of how to make sure that fear doesn 't spoil the things that i 'm committed to or that I love
2: I think in some way. It's a hard pill to digest because to me, the way to get over a lot of fear is by going through it and embracing sort of the worst case outcome, because to some degree, the worst case outcome is guaranteed. Eventually, things are going to go terrible. Eventually, you know, we keep it's the opposite of the motivational speaker who tell you everything is for the best. My thing is like, no, there is a monster under your bed and we'll one day crawl out of there and devour you. Okay, happy. Now we can move. On. It's like where's <laughs> well, the good in that? Well, that sucks. Well, the good part is this, is since it's assured that ultimately we all got sick, we all got old. Well, got old is actually a plus. It's uh but we all got sick and we're all gonna die. Once we acknowledge that, what's left to be afraid of? You know, is like that is a guarantee. you don't get to keep anything. you get to lose the things you love. There's plenty of terrible stuff that's guaranteed. So that in odd kind of way can relax you because it's like what are you gonna scare me with something worse than that. it's already it's already there. It's already once you stare the monster in the face, there's really not much else that can scare you. It's weird. It's like the times in my life when they were the most absolutely awful they were the times when I had the less, less fear because I had less to lose. It's like, well, I mean, this is already happening. What do you think is going to get worse? You can do this twice. It's like, so in that sense, relaxing about outcome, thinking about outcome, like that same approach, like I'm doing the best I can. I'm going to focus. I'm going to work hard to do the absolute best I can. But ultimately, outcome to some degrees out of my hands because sometimes you cannot always guarantee a successful outcome to things. And so taking that, uh, not having your ego so invested in, uh, I want things to work out that way. Like I notice sometimes when people compete, whether it's martial arts or something else, they do the best when they are relaxed, which is when they fully accept the possibility of defeat and they just go in there with the idea, I'm just going to go have fun. I'm going to go do my absolute best. And if I get knocked out in the process, I get knocked out in the process. That's how it is. Whereas when people are scared of a negative outcome, they freeze, they get more tense, they get more nervous, they react less quick. And paradoxically, the very thing they were afraid of, they are actually increasing the odds that things are going to work out that way. So sort of doing a little bit of that embracing worst case scenario and accepting that that's always there and deciding that you're going to go out and have fun and do your best regardless of outcome. That's the key. Of course, that's way easier said than done. And it's, you know, I'm giving you the one minute version type of thing. It's probably stuff that's worth thinking about in the way that exactly clicks with you. uh, Because sometimes the same words that may click for one person don't click for the next. But I think it's somewhere in there, the solution
4: to the dilemma.
1: Joe, got anything else to say? Really liked your question.
4: Yeah. I mean, th- that's great advice. And, um, uh, uh- Absolutely, just relaxing into it and, and working on your own performance is great. Um, sometimes the worst case scenario is is pretty bad. Um, you yeah. know, if,
1: when you when, you, when <laughs> yeah, you you're not talking about yeah, free climbing, yeah. are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Free climbing well, what are we or? talking about here? <laughs> the worst yeah, case scenario is you fall off the yeah. entire cliff. But that, that's, no, that's but one
4: thing, know, thing. But I'm know, also I, thinking about my patients. Um, you know, yeah. I, I, I have to sort of you know, if if uh, if you're doing an operation suddenly you start seeing blood that's pretty scary but you've you've got to still be in charge and, 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 and maintain composure but even in all these situations um, you know knowing that you have prepared the best you can prepare and do the best that you can do is is usually my strategy and uh, and uh, just to try and you know maintain a level of uh, performance even in these situations is is the hard thing so um, thanks yeah. What what kind of surgery do you do, Joe? Uh, trauma and orthopedics. It's man. mainly mainly hand and wrist surgery nowadays.
1: Do you want to come on the show sometime and talk about it? <laughs> it yeah, give me a call.
0: All right, Joe. Thank you so much for uh, calling. And everyone, everyone, please check out Daniele Bellelli's drunken Taoist at danielebelletti dot com. His podcast "History on Fire" is only available. On the platform Luminary. He has written several books. Oh, coming back. Tell us about
2: it. Today actually was my last episode on Luminary, came out. And then after, I'll have a month in between. And then by July, I get to start publishing it again on whatever platform I want in front of No Paywall, kind of as a
0: freebie. Perfect. So everyone, check out danielebileli.com, sign up for. Everything he has to offer. Get the books on the warrior's path. Create your own religion and not afraid. On fear, heartbreak, raising a baby girl, and cage fighting Daniele Balelli. Thank you so much for coming on Dost.
2: Thank you for having me. This was fun.
0: Thanks so much, Danieli.
1: Thanks everyone for joining us live here on Call In. If you're joining us in the future, listening on another app. Get the Colin app and join us live here every week. Next episode is May 29th with a much lighter topic than we've been doing. Thanks again for everyone in the chat as well. Love seeing your comments. I'm going to take you out with some more Anahedron. Again, this is the song Filaments Burst off of his album Rend Wake, which you can find anywhere you listen to music.